Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. More than two months have passed since the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but almost every day, the story continues to unfold in real time, with new arrests, new evidence, new revelations about how the insurrection was planned, who was behind it, the causes, scale, and scope of the law enforcement failure that allowed it to occur, new security threats to the U.S. Capitol, and new insights into the realms of far-right extremism, both online and off, that continue to seethe and fester out there, sometimes secretly, sometimes in plain sight, but ominously on every level. To explore all of this, this week I called on a friend who's deeply wired into all of these dark, dystopic, doomstruck developments, the deep divisions and ominous signs of impending disaster. Clint Watts. The state of online extremism is the fastest, most intense landscape I've seen in my entire career. There are more extremists online moving quicker towards violence than at any time in my career. The second part is there are more extremists by type and age than I've seen at any time in my career. So it's both more vast and moving more quickly than at any other point I've seen in the history of social media. Clint Watts is a former FBI special agent, a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, a national security contributor, NBC News and MSNBC, and the author of Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. But these affiliations, past and present, are not what brought Watts to prominence or the main reasons that talking with him is always so illuminating, absorbing, and disconcerting. Back in 2016, when almost no one else was paying attention, Watts was among the very first experts to raise concerns about Russian online activity during that year's presidential election, which is an understated way of saying that Clint was running around with his hair on fire, frantically sounding the alarm over a hostile foreign power engaged in an audacious and far-reaching campaign of information warfare against the United States and in favor of Donald Trump. If you evinced any interest in his obsession whatsoever, Watts would open up his laptop and pull you straight down the rabbit hole walking you through a Byzantine PowerPoint deck filled with graphs, charts, Twitter and Facebook screenshots, YouTube videos, the works. When it was over, once your head had stopped spinning, you would be convinced of two things. Number one, Watts was some hopped up amalgam of Russell Crowe's character John Nash in A Beautiful Mind and Carrie Matheson in Homeland. And two, Clint was definitely onto something and it was scary as hell. Once the election was over, it soon became clear to everyone that both of those things were true And Watts was soon scaring the hell out of the United States Senate by advising the vaunted Intel Committee to, quote, follow the trail of dead Russians. But over the next three years, even as he kept his eye on Putin and his henchmen and their cyber exploits and Iran's and China's and so on, Watts began to train his sights on the home front, too, where all manner of MAGA-fueled extremism was proliferating online, heaving and coalescing into an imminent domestic terror threat. Watts' fear was that the threat would imperil the 2020 election. And while that didn't happen on election day, thank God, Watts' dire warnings were vindicated once again on January 6th. The insurrection itself, what exactly happened, what led up to it, and what more we need to know about it, was one thing I wanted to discuss with Clint here on the podcast. Another was his reboot of Selected Wisdom, a terrorism blog he founded in 2010 as a new project on Substack, which kicked off earlier this month with a typically compelling post entitled Virtual Insanity to Real World Calamity. How Will Lies Power Domestic Terrorism in 2021, in which he not only lays out a lucid taxonomy of the extremist landscape, 
but describes the dynamics he believes will likely lead to more tumult, chaos, and violence in the months to come. For a podcast devoted to exploring this apocalyptic moment in American life, these topics are unavoidable, though no doubt disturbing. But confronting them is, I think, essential if we are ever going to make it to a better place on the other side of both the hell and the high water. You're talking to somebody that covered it and got kicked off YouTube for covering it. Um, I don't know, man. I'm serious. I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'll go back and I'll go back to, and to what I said before. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of people there. The Antifa was there. BLM was there. MAGA people were there. Yeah. Everybody was there. And if... <laughs> Joe Biden wants to talk unity. <laughs> there was unity there on that day because America is sick and tired of being pushed down. So Clint Watts is here with us today, my favorite surveyor of extremist dystopia in America. And, you know, this podcast is dedicated to this moment we've kind of been living in the last, I'd say, a little over a year now where the sense of end times is upon us and the apocalyptic COVID recession, racial reckoning, extremism, insurrectionist moment. <laughs> and I can't actually think of anybody who speaks more directly to some of the core of that than Clint. So Clint, it's great to have you here. We just heard this gentleman at CPAC, one of the many lunatics there, telling us to not believe our eyes and telling us even that, that Kevin McCarthy even was wrong. And in fact, that what happened on January 6th was a left-wing uprising, a false flag operation of some kind. It kind of kicks off in a good place for us because I want to start this conversation today by just talking about, you know, we now have a couple months removed from January 6th, I guess almost a half a year since the election, which is sort of crazy. But, you know, January 6th still stands as a big moment in American history, I think. And I know you've been thinking about it and studying it and analyzing it ever since it happened. So I guess I want to start and ask you, like, given all of the evidence and the detail that we now have, what's your understanding of what took place at the Capitol on January 6th? Well, I think you had the collision of three different types of extremists. One, you have the fringe chapters of groups, the Oath Keepers being the one that is most prolific in the news right now, the Proud Boys, which have been present several times since Election Day in D.C., and you saw them collide with the conspiracy theorists, the QAnon adherents, that are on the extreme fringe that wanted to mobilize in place and wanted to show up in a very dedicated way on January 6th. And then you saw an entire different collective of just ordinary Trump supporters that showed up there, not aware that inside their midst were actual extremists, people that intended to go into the Capitol. They had even spoke about it online. We had talked about it, you know, last year. You could watch what they were saying, which was, let's go January 6th. The president himself said, it's going to be wild on his Twitter account. And so when you get that confluence and you have elected leaders, political leaders saying, go to the Capitol, it's going to be wild. I think Giuliani, his words were something to the effect, trial by combat, you know, the day right. before, that people take that seriously. That's why they were there. They, they took it seriously to travel there on January 6th, and they took it serious to break into the Capitol, and ultimately people died because of it. So in the context of the impeachment trial, we got to see a very detailed case that got laid out regarding Donald Trump's role in inciting this insurrection. Step by step, 
over many months, not just his rally on the ellipse, but all of the stuff he did both in the campaign for months beforehand online on his Twitter feed. We saw all that. There's been a lot of discussion about a parallel thing that was happening in the world that you spend most of your time in, which is to say in the world of social media and online extremism, and that there was a similar buildup happening. Again, not a thing that happened on the day or that happened a couple of weeks even earlier, but that had been building for months. And I'd like you just to talk about that, about as you were watching the many groups that you monitor and the activity that you study, how you sort of saw that trajectory over some number of weeks and months building to January 6th. You know, you've just started a new Substack, which I strongly recommend everybody sign up for. It's Selected Wisdom, which is Clint's also Twitter handle. If you're interested in this world, you should all go and sign up for it. At the very beginning of your kind of first post, you start by saying that the insurrection came in some ways later than a lot of people expected, which suggests, again, that you were kind of seeing the buildup to it in the online world. And so I just want you to talk through the way in which what you saw in that latter part of 2020 building towards this thing so that in some ways the details of what happened on January 6th were unexpected, but the gist of it in some ways was something you kind of were predicting or at least had a sense was in the offing. Yeah, John, this is probably the third iteration of this in the last 10 years that I've worked on where you're always looking for when do words equate to a physical behavior change? Meaning there's always uproar and outrage, you know, in social media, but when do people start showing up places? And you could see that if you remember back last, I think it was last summer, where a troll essentially pulled a stunt on Trump supporters and said, there was going to be a flag burning or something of that effect at a battlefield, you know, in Pennsylvania at Gettysburg. And people showed up to like fight that. And it was all just concocted by somebody. So it showed you how primed the audience was to react and do something. And that should have been our first big warning. Like, holy cow, people are reacting to this very strongly. The second one was the George Floyd protest. There were several incidents where there were claims that Antifa three bus loads or three plane loads of Antifa will descend on your town. And there were these text message changed and you saw people show up hunting for Antifa. So that's like an early warning. Yeah. Then the conditions are set right for election day. You have the president saying the election's going to be rigged unless I won. <laughs> Only if I win, is it true? If I don't win, it's fake, right? And it's been rigged. And you saw talk almost immediately after that, we're not going to let them steal the election. And on your show, The Circus, you had documented, you'd gone out and interviewed different people, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, you know, some of these militia type groups. The Proud Boys were very in everyone's face. And then the one thing I think that I miscalculated a little bit, I was worried about polling places on election day. And that did happen to a degree, but they also thought that they might win. This was part of the reason why they didn't mobilize like they did in January 6th. There still was a chance that they could win. So they weren't sure where to point to, but you saw the president almost immediately when he knew he had lost, start pointing to different actors. First, it was Gretchen Whitmer, and you saw the Wolverine militia group start to plot a kidnapping. Then you saw Philadelphia right after QAnon supporters, two of them show up to see what's going on in the vote counting. Okay, that that's very dangerous. And then those three weeks you know, leading up to January 6th, overwhelming amounts of online discussion. And then you saw something different. It wasn't just, we need to stop the steal. It was, how do I go stop the steal? Right. Planning, organization, transportation. Can I bring weapons? Those conversations were in the open. I think that's what you saw during the impeachment trial we're seeing now. Washington Post almost every day has a story about 
these are the details coming out about a larger conspiracy case. You know, what this first Substack post of yours is a very interesting kind of attempt to map out the geography of online extremism and kind of lay out the different vectors of, you know, what comprises this community, if you want to call it that, and the different motivations that drive different kinds of online extremists. And I, th I think for a lot of people, it's all one thing. It's like, you know, they're all a bunch of Trump supporters and they're all a bunch of white nationalists or they're, you know, but that's not really the case. I mean, you've got these very distinct subgroups and I want you to kind of walk through them in terms of like the militias, the white nationalists, the anti-government groups, the conspiracy theorists, like there's overlap obviously, but there are some important distinctions in terms of what animates them, what motivates them and what they're likely to actually do in the real world. And you make some distinctions in the post about which are the most dangerous and what we have to be most attuned to if we're going to try to fight this stuff off. I think the thing that sticks out to me the most, John, is a lot of the lessons learned from the Al-Qaeda ISIS era like apply in one context, which was in the news, we would treat everything as an Al-Qaeda story or an ISIS story. But subsurface, if you asked any FBI investigator or anybody overseas who's working counterterrorism, they would be like, well... There's a Taliban and there's these other groups and there's a lot of different groups that we kind of throw under this umbrella. And so I think it's helpful now to kind of think through people's motivations for why they would turn to violence and how that aligns under Trump for the moment and will probably diverge over time. So what we saw on January 6th was more older extremists and more militia-based extremists. And I think that's important to know because it gets confusing for the public. They look out and they see groups of guys with guns and battle gear, very intimidating. But largely, they know up until January 6th how to walk the line right up to what is free speech and protected assembly. They know that it's a show to a degree. But that is where conspiracies have collided with around the election, where now they have chapters or individuals as part of these militia groups that do not recognize Joe Biden as the president. And the other challenge of this is that sort of anti-government militia those organizations are very similar to what we saw in the 90s, if you re rewind, and they have overlapping membership with either current or former military people or current or former law enforcement people. Extremely dangerous in the sense that they may not respect the law as it is from the federal level. If you rewind to 20, 30 years, Eric Rudolph, McVeigh, Kevin Harfum, the uh, Martin Luther King bomber that was disrupted, all military veterans. How could they do what they did? Well, they had skill and they weren't afraid to commit violence because they're desensitized to a degree. So the most hardcore ardent people in those organizations, looking at the Oath Keepers now, and many of them are former military, that is very concerning because they will know how to implement violence. Fewer of them, they're older, they usually move a little bit slower. <laughs> Separate, you know, they don't jump to violence right away. It takes right. time, but when they do execute, it's not a... Uh, random guy who goes in and does a shooting. They're very sophisticated. That That's McVeigh. You know, when you look back, like he really worked at his plot for a long time and he had devastating effect. Yeah. The opposite corner, which I thought Director Ray gave one of the most impressive overviews of extremism during his hearing, actually. I would certainly say, as I think I've said consistently in the past, that uh, racially motivated violent extremism, specifically of the sort that advocates for the superiority of the white race uh, is a persistent evolving threat. It's the biggest chunk of our racially motivated violent extremism cases for sure. 
uh, and, in, and racially motivated violence is the biggest chunk of our domestic terrorism portfolio, if you will, overall. I will also say that the same group of people we're talking about have been responsible for uh, the most lethal attacks uh, over the last, uh, say, decade. He was trying to articulate, like, I know everyone's upset about January 6th, but there's this other corner of online extremism that we're not talking about today, and that is super worrying to them. And he kept harping on encryption and encrypted communications. And he was signaling, I think he was signaling, I am blind to what the most dangerous plots are from this younger generation. That is a mix predominantly led by white supremacists and race-based extremists who congregate, mobilize online. And we saw this, that was the 2018 time period, 2019 time period, where these young guys, white guys, go into places, they hit targets, they hit religious centers, they're going after different races. We saw it from New Zealand all the way into Europe. And they essentially spawned two groups, which became more organized. So if you let this online stuff fester for too long, they actually create organized collectives. And the two most dangerous as of two years ago were called the base, ironically the same as Al-Qaeda, same words, and Adam Waffen. And these organized cells of young people are trying to murder. They are creating terrorist attacks. That is the entire point. And what a, a term that I think the public needs to know more and more is accelerationism or accelerationist, which is the idea is to accelerate either a race war or a second civil war or violence to bring around societal change. And that's very much entrenched in the anti-government misogynist and white supremacist group of what I call stochastic haters, but it's known as stochastic terrorism. I mean, you can't quite, there's no real organizational structure. It comes from an online mob that collaborates and elevates each other. The third one, which we should worry about now, and I'm hoping as the reality horizon hits post-January 6th, will become less intense, is the QAnon phenomenon. And that is separate in the sense that it's older. It's based around total and complete fictions. Doesn't necessarily line up with any ideology of any coherence. And they tend to skew quite a bit older. And they're mostly Trump supporters. But in some of them, what we consistently see, and I think it was the Phoenix office of the FBI put out a threat assessment that said, we're seeing a significant threat of violence from that. This was the Hoover Dam, a couple plots in Phoenix, down on the border in Arizona. Different collective, a little bit different in terms of their thinking. They have a general disbelief of things, and they oftentimes are very confused. This is Pizzagate. So that's like a third variant, also very hard to detect, but a little bit more rare compared to those other two quadrants, the anti-government militias and the online young, angry men that have serviced in many different plots. You mentioned the thing about Ray, which I think has struck a lot of people. He's kind of consistently focused on, or at least has put his finger on the notion that race-driven white nationalist terror threats are either the most numerous or the most threatening. But he highlighted that in multiple congressional testimonies over the course of the last you know, year or so. And I think what I heard you say just now is that the way you read that testimony, in addition to his most recent testimony, in addition to re-emphasizing that point, that he was without saying directly that he's concerned about the ability of the FBI to monitor that. He was, in fact, in some way implicitly expressing a notion that because these groups are living on encrypted communications platforms that the FBI is sort of blind to that. I think I heard you say that, and I, I just want you to say a little bit more about that because there's a high degree of frustration and exasperation on people's parts. I remember, you know, right after January 6th, the insurrection happened. 
in the days following, you had a lot of media reporting that basically said, you know what, this is all, we could see this coming. You know, anybody who was paying attention to what was happening in these groups online, you know, we were raising red flags. We were telling people and people wouldn't listen, right? That's one kind of an exasperation, which is like, you know, people could see it coming and no one was paying attention, but there's a different kind of a threat when you're talking about, we just can't see it coming. And if that's what Ray is suggesting is that there is a particularly virulent and particularly violent and particularly threatening form of online extremism that can move into the real world. And we are blind to it. That is kind of more terrifying in some ways. And it's a deeper, at least a different kind of problem to fix. Absolutely right. It's a couple of variables, right? It's what's the trade-off between security and privacy. And it's interesting watching the political polls flip on this over 10 years from Edward Snowden to now. People forget like Edward Snowden threw a lot of sand in the gears of the bureau at a time when they were dealing with things like San Bernardino terrorist attack where they could not get into an iPhone, right? They right. they couldn't see it. And James Comey was one of the ones that was like, hey, we have to deal with this encryption issue. We're flying blind. Separately, it's the reaction versus preemption principle. So people want 100% privacy and 100% preemption, and that's just not going to happen. You know, you can't fit into that quadrant at all. It just doesn't work. So then it comes down to what do we want the FBI to do? Pretty consistently, people want the FBI to see and detect everything in social media and not look at social media at the same time. And in the Bureau, this has been a huge issue for a long time. This goes back to the Al-Qaeda ISIS days where you could only investigate an Al-Qaeda or ISIS lead in the beginning if it tied to a known or believed to be Al-Qaeda or ISIS person. Well, you had Anwar Al-Qaeda saying, hey, Americans, if you support me, just do a terrorist attack on your own at home in your homeland. Is he, are they part of Al-Qaeda? Did, he didn't communicate with them. They're doing it in public space. Very similar to what I think Ray was emphasizing we have now with these white supremacists in the online space. We have extremists all the time in the U.S. saying, hey, if you don't like somebody, go kill them. And putting that out onto social media, you see someone else respond to that message and go do it. Or you have the president say, I'm going up to the Capitol. Let's go. And people go. And so, you know, then the FBI is in a position of, okay, what is free speech? And then when can I start to investigate? And Ray always emphasizes that. He's very smart about it. He says, we only are investigating violence. That's what we're focused on. But that line of incitement versus violence is not well understood in the domestic space. And I've had a lot of people scream at me, the FBI can look at social media. They can do it all the time. You know, they watch a lot of TV. I'm like, right. <laughs> Let, let's get our hands around this. There are about half as many FBI agents nationwide as there are NYPD cops, you know, roughly. They're, they're spread all over the country. Every time somebody said, I think we need to start a second civil war, if you launch an investigation, no one would ever go to sleep for years, right? There's just too much to triage. Right. And that's where the terrorism law that is going to be a big issue, I think, is the designation. If you can't call them a domestic terrorist organization, you can't investigate things collectively. And this is the other side. The ACLU says all the laws are fine. You shouldn't look at people's communications, all the statutes there you need. And that's a very analog way. You know, you know, the social media era, it doesn't really work that way, I don't think. You just talked in a very helpful way about some of the distinctions between the militia groups, the white nationalist groups, the kind of misogynist groups, the anti-government groups, the conspiracy theorists. And as, as I said before, there's overlap. You've just talked about that. But there's a couple things that it seems like there's animating overlapping elements. And one is Trump himself. 
you know, that Trump was a coagulant and an accelerant for these groups and was the bonding agent that held a lot of this stuff together. And we'll talk later in the podcast about look as we look towards the future of what where we're headed here. But there's no doubt that in this period, the last four years, Trump has been the glue for a lot of these groups that have helped them to smooth over or paper over maybe some of their other differences. They were just animated by him. The other thing is this notion of a second civil war, which seems like a big idea, you know, that a lot of these different groups who are come from different places, have different motivations. Some of them are more ideological. Some are less ideological. Some are mostly racist. Some are just, you know, like guns. But this notion, second civil war, something that I have, you know, in 30 years of being out in the country covering American politics, that's not a phrase, even as the polarization in the country got worse and worse. And the people, especially on the right, started to hate government, hate the media, all of those things. It's been going on for 30 years. The phrase second civil war is new to me. It's like a thing that I feel is like in the last year or two is the first time I ever heard that out in the world in addition to online. So I just want you to just talk a little bit about that as an animating principle and whether I'm right about the fact that it feels new and whether it in its novelty and its capacity to pull together these disparate threads in the online world, whether it's uniquely dangerous in a way, if that becomes a thing around which people kind of rally in these disparate extremist cadres. It is a 10-year trend line. And it it really starts, in my mind, with birtherism to a degree, which is really about identity and the speech that started as who are real Americans. That really came down to, I am a real American. People I don't like are not real Americans. And it's become this sort of bipolar nature. And that's been shaped by several different trends, I think inequality and uneven development around the country, partitioning of information environment to where you're either in Fox News world or not Fox News world, which really is, you know, inculcated this identity sort of politics of these are real Americans, these people are not. That is tied into the Tea Party, which blended very smoothly into the Trump party to a degree, you know, in certain aspects of it. And then the other part that I don't think it's talked about enough, it's part of the reason you saw a lot of military people in the ranks of the insurrection is not spoken about enough, which is the war on terror was fought by a very small segment of the American populace that has identified with itself a kind of warrior culture, American sniper you know, viewpoint of the world. And you'll see that in some of Trump's supporters. I think it goes subsurface a lot. This is Marcus Luttrell. This is the Navy SEAL sort of perspective. I saw this a lot when I was teaching law enforcement over the last 10 years, the Punisher symbol emerging as almost like an identity of I am the defender of the real America. All of these, you know, come together because Trump is the connective tissue for a wide range of angry white American dudes. You know, that is really how it works out in the end. With him gone, I'm curious if that will separate apart. What I find shocking, like you, John, is even watching it, Texas exit, Cal exit in 2016, those were Russian stunts around what's called devolution, dividing body politics apart and making them fight against each other. Catalonia is when they do, Scotland's when they do in Europe, right? And I just never thought it would take hold. You know, I just didn't think it would be something that would be propelled in the United States. But then yeah. when you think of the, Trump, the politics of Trump, no NATO no EU. Oh, let's refashion our allies. The allies that matter most to us are authoritarian white guys, right? Like the Putin, the 
Berlusconi, you know, sort of Italian characters, you know, that is Bannon's power structure in his mind that he advances. And now looking back, it's like you could see the momentum sort of build towards that in an interesting way to where now when we're doing COVID-19, we're doing vaccines, you look at the partitions in America, Texas going with the mask man, it, it is an identity politic subsurface that I had said ton in cheek when I did my book launch a couple of years ago, I, I would say, don't be surprised if you see someone run for president in 2036, let's say, if I got my years right here. That under the auspices that they'll break up the United States, you know, like that would be their platform or that they would create a federation, you know, that isn't so much tied to the U.S. government. I would not be yeah. surprised by that. And I think it's a current that is very worrisome. Second Civil War is the most extreme example of that. I have two more questions for you before you take a break. One of them is related to, you mentioned Tim McVeigh earlier when we heard the bombing had happened. I got on a plane in flew to Oklahoma City that morning and then covered that story and its political aftermath really over the course of the next you know year to 18 months. In some sense, we're still living in the aftermath of it. So we're all sort of still covering the aftermath of Oklahoma City, in my opinion. And I, it's the first time I ever heard of the Michigan militia. It's the first time, you know, the first time a lot of people in mainstream media started to become acquainted with the notion that there were these outlying extremist right-wing anti-government movements happening in the woods in Michigan and other places. I would say over the course of the last four years, I'd say, you know, I'd constantly McVeigh would come back to my mind in Oklahoma City. It seemed to me like the through line was clear, not just in my professional experience, but just in, in the way our politics had kind of moved along with the, the kind of aftermath of that from Pat Buchanan through to Trump. Again, I always think there's kind of a straight connective tissue between Buchanan in 92 and 96 and how Trump ran in 2016 and 2020. One of the things that you write about is that McVeigh exemplifies a particular kind of threat, which is the lone wolf, not someone who's necessarily part of a group or a cell, that is not part of some organized operation, doesn't necessarily associate with the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters or whoever, but who is just lit up by all of this kind of churning activity out there. And the phrase you use in the post is stochastic acceleration. For all the people on this podcast who are as dumb as me listening to it, just explain what stochastic acceleration is and talk about the problem of the lone wolf in the environment we currently live in. So the stochastic part is that you cannot organize data around any given entity to create a trend line like you could with a militia group that says, this is what they say they want to do. This is what they are going to go do. And so the way we would do it in counterterrorism with a normal non-stochastic organized group is we'd say, Osama bin Laden says he's determined to attack the United States. How is he going to do it? Let's stop him from doing it. Stochastic isn't that way. Stochastic is the online mob. It is what we see when we go out on social media. And it's a discussion. What should we do? How would we do it? Does anyone know how to do this? When should I do it? The Nashville bombing that we saw with the trailer, stochastic event. No one knew about this guy. No one knew he plotted to do this except for him, but he figured out his reasoning in his own mind. He picked that as a target on Christmas Day, and he knew how to put together a device, and it seems like he was prepping it and practicing it and putting it together over an extended period. That's stochastic terrorism. The other part that's added to this is in the current environment, particularly with these younger guys in the online environment, is acceleration. That now is the time. If we don't do it now, we're missing an opportunity. And right. to bring around the societal change, whether it's white supremacists or anti-government, which is the Boogaloo movement that you hear a lot about right now that's particularly frightening, 
it's we have to accelerate a second civil war. We have to accelerate a race war now right. while we have the momentum. Trump was the momentum. Right. Now's the time. Yeah. Now's the time. Right. Trump was the momentum for that. The combination of that, that sense of urgency, that sense of churn, that swirl of excited possibility. I don't mean to make it sound romantic, but I imagine for people who live in this world, it is exciting and romantic in a way. Suddenly, social media connects them to all these people who are thinking like the way they are, where they would have previously been kind of a weird, sad, basement-dwelling, garage-dwelling freak. They suddenly are like, there's a lot of people like me out there who are thinking like this, and we can all talk about this stuff now and give some sense of psychological, political, ideological, whatever reinforcement. And in a lot of cases, some tips on how to put stuff together, you know, and some ideas. Yes. In some ways, the lone wolf in the offline environment, the lone wolf's isolation was what saved us, right? It made it hard to do this stuff. How do I learn to build a bomb? How do I learn to pick a target? Am I really just alone? Am I really just a freak? You know, all of that doubt, all of that stuff, right? Now it's like you can switch on the computer and you are connected to all of this other stuff, where even if you don't participate, if you're just lurking, you have this sense that I'm part of this bigger thing. It's attainable for people who don't have the real world identity, that don't have the real world collective feelings of a community they want. They can have it all online almost instantaneously in a fervor, which is part of the reason why in that online collective, you'll hear them refer to whoever executed an attack as a saint, Saint Tarrant, the guy who went and did the attack at the mosque in New Zealand, he's considered a saint. You can become essentially an ideological cleric online without ever knowing any of your supporters. You can achieve something in a world that has meaning to you, even if in your daily life you're totally miserable and isolated. And this has created like a lot of debate in the counterterrorism space about do we call them lone wolves? Because while they are physically lonely, they are not alone. You know, in the online environment, like you were talking about, John, right. they're communicating all the time with people they don't even know. And there's an added dimension to this, which is if you're a foreign adversary, you can integrate into all of these communities anonymously and nudge people to do all sorts of things. And so this creates this very dangerous like national security, domestic security sort of confluence, which is there is no such thing as foreign and domestic in the extremist space, whether it's Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or white supremacists in America. There is no such thing as a lone wolf anymore, and we've entered a new age where there's distinctions between solitary and group, and the distinctions between, as you just said, foreign and domestic have collapsed in some ways. And that's, I think, one of the leveling and accelerating influences of social media is to make it the core of this, right? That's what it's done is it's collapsed a lot of those distinctions and made for a much more combustible, I would say, and more threatening environment that we live in because of all those things. And I'm not really blaming social media for that. It's just a feature of it, right? Right. It's the way it happens. And th that was the toughest dimension I had trying to plot in the Substack post on Selective Wisdom, which was how do you show that people are both online and in person, right? Yeah. And so I took an average, but it's not exactly correct because you can have someone who's a member of a militia group, but at night goes and hangs out in the online community with the extremists in the stochastic sort of corner and they're inspired by both. There's no definitive line. It's more like I'm doing that because the next post that comes out, which I, I'm working on now, is what do you do to counter that, right? Like, because if you're an investigator or counterterrorism, you got to think about where do I waste my precious resources to try and mitigate the problem in the biggest way? 
I don't want to send a bunch of people just sitting online watching people talk right. Second Civil War all day and be like, I don't know who any of these people are. What am I going to do about it? Right. It's a tough dimension to tackle. Everyone is online and offline, but it's the preponderance of where they get their identity from, I think. And uh, I think what you meant was spend my resources, not waste my resources, I hope, because we don't want any of these people to waste any of their resources. I, I think um, I wanted to say waste because I just remember how many times <laughs> in, you know, I did like three different stops at the bureau, you know, working there. And it would be like, this feels like a waste of time. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm dedicating my resources here. I'm not catching anybody. I'm not detecting anything. But you're right. It's where do you dedicate it? So I think, Clint, that is a good place for us to take a break because you just mentioned your time at the FBI. And I want to go a little deeper on that and talk about how your relationship at the Bureau brought you to some degree of prominence and then eventually led to the congressional testimony that made you <laughs> really genuinely famous and put you in a position where you had a much bigger platform than you had ever had before in terms of the public and the broader political discourse after the 2016 election. So let's uh, let's take a break right now and listen to some advertisements, and then we'll be back with Clint and part two of Hell and High Water. I think this answer is very simple and is what no one is really saying in this room, which is part of the reason active measures have worked in this U.S. election is because the commander-in-chief has used Russian active measures at time uh, against his opponents. Uh, on 11 October, uh, President Trump stood on a stage and cited a, what appears to be a fake news story from Sputnik News that disappeared from the Internet. Uh, he denies the intel from the United States about Russia. Uh, he claimed that the election could be rigged. That was the number one theme pushed by RT, Sputnik News, white outlets all the way up until the election. Uh, he's cl made claims of voter fraud that President Obama is not a citizen, that, you know, uh, Congressman Cruz is not a citizen. So part of the reason active measures works, and it does today in terms of Trump Tower being wiretapped, is because they parrot the same lines. I can tell you right now today, gray outlets that are Soviet-pushing accounts tweet at President Trump during high volumes when they know he's online, and they push conspiracy theories. So welcome back to Hell on High Water. That was Clint Watts in the congressional testimony that vaulted him to superstardom or vaulted him out of obscurity. Let's put it that way. A lot of people didn't really necessarily know who Clint Watts was before that testimony. And then suddenly you were on television and you said some very striking things as in that piece of sound we just played. And whenever someone kind of, and I don't mean to be, obviously I'm not being disrespectful because you know how much I respect you, but when people kind of come out of nowhere and suddenly they, the moment, like a thing that people weren't concerned about previously, in this case, Russian disinformation, and the president of the United States suddenly becomes a topic that people are fixated on, people start looking for experts and for people who know something about, and then the person like you has a moment, right? So I just want to kind of talk, Clint, a little bit about how, you know, we've talked about this ad infinitum in various uh, settings, but I, I do think for anybody who's not familiar with your work, you know, we spent the first part of this podcast talking about the online domestic extremism mostly. And the reality is that you came to prominence talking about something different, related, but different in that period after the 2016 election when Russian disinformation had suddenly reared its head in a way that people were paying attention to, people were looking for answers, you suddenly appeared on the horizon. Tell that story of four years earlier in a prior election cycle, how a different kind of activity online caught your interest. And because of the fact, the anomaly of Donald Trump getting elected president and the way he got elected president, 
it suddenly meant that a thing that was a relatively, for I would imagine most of your career was seen as a relatively obscure specialty and your expertise was suddenly something that was very much in demand. Yeah. 2012 was my last year that I worked at FBI headquarters, and I, I worked for a guy named Tom Harrington, and he was the associate deputy director for Director Mueller. And so I worked there almost the entire year of 2012, and he had retired, and it was time to kind of move on. And I got an opportunity to work with him again, doing cybersecurity in the private sector, literally building out like, how do we do intelligence processes the way we did for counterterrorism, but in cybersecurity? And I had two projects, though, then. The other one was tracking Al-Qaeda and ISIS members on social media. And during that project, it was literally just recording them because the great thing about Al-Qaeda and ISIS terrorists online is they tell you everything they're doing. So you could see them filming themselves in Iraq or Syria or these different places. And I had worked a lot on international terrorism and social media in the decade prior to that. And so we just watched it. But in that storm of extremists, is where we saw these weird characters that looked like and talked like Americans and had the avatars of someone who's an Ohio State Buckeyes fan in one and, you know, flowers and dog pictures on the other, you know, that would say things about the U.S. mixed in with the U.S. is backing al-Qaeda in Syria, you know, which seemed really weird that someone in Ohio had such an opinion. So when we saw that, we just kept tracing it and... Myself, a guy named Jan Berger, and another guy named Andrew Weisberg, we had worked together on this counterterrorism online mob for years, and we knew we were onto something. And the more we traced it, by the spring of 2014, we knew it was Russia. We were confident about it, but we didn't understand what they were trying to do, and we just stayed on it. And then by the summer of 2015, they were talking a lot about U.S. issues instead of al-Qaeda in Syria or ISIS in Syria or whatever it might be. They wanted to talk about U.S. social issues, race issues, uh, societal issues. And that was odd. Why would they jump from topic to topic? And this is what got the Russians caught over time is once you build a following in the online space, you don't want to lose those followers. But if you shift topics, you kind of show that you're not who you say you are. By the summer of 2015 in briefings, I would conclude with, I know we're worried about ISIS right now, but there's this weird stuff I think the Russians are doing and the Iranians to a degree and social media. And it's strange, and I don't know how important it is. And in the counterterrorism space, they weren't ignoring it, but it wasn't their mission, right? It just wasn't their beat. They're like, what are you telling me about this Russia stuff for? I, who cares? By 16, I had briefed it probably a half dozen times. And so people around DC and even in the social media space knew that I was covering this Russian disinformation sort of section. And then when it came time to testify, I got a call because we had written a couple articles in 2016 and said, I know you're seeing a lot of a lot of stuff that seems weird, but some of it is coming from the Kremlin and you should be aware right. of it. And so that's how I ended up testifying. I think the day I testified, I thought that would be the last time I ever talked about it because no one seemed <laughs> interested in it. In the 2016 cycle, Clint Watts, Russian disinformation, how the whole ecosystem worked in a very granular way and then at a very high level way. Again, your 2017 testimony for a lot of people was two things was, you know, Trump amplified this stuff. He was a witting or unwitting agent of Russian disinformation in all these ways. And then you talked about famously about the trail of dead Russians, that these were like headlines out of that testimony, right? But that's how people thought of you. I want to ask you in a second about kind of what happened with that 
because I think we ended up with you being very focused on obviously all this domestic online extremism stuff, but you were watching Russia a lot in the period of 2017, 2018, 2019, leading into 2020 with an expectation that they would try something similar or that they would modify their tactics, but that we would see another major effort probably by Russia, but maybe by Iran or maybe by China or maybe by some other foreign state or non-state actor. That was a concern of yours, you know, then you were looking for like, what's going to happen now? What's the next chapter in this story? So I want to ask you, what happened to that? I mean, obviously it got eclipsed entirely by a different set of stories related to disinformation, misinformation, the big lie, what led to January 6th. But what happened with Russia when, you know, that was a thing that a lot of people were concerned about all the way until October of 2020. And we never really, at least as far as I know, we didn't quite see it, or at least it got eclipsed by this other stuff. How do you explain what did and didn't happen related to Russian and the other foreign state actors who were trying to, to mess with our information space? Russia remained a constant and still does, but has now been met by impediments, you know, to that 2016 model, meaning that they lost a lot of their covert social media accounts. As soon as the public is aware that there is a covert campaign, the way it came out in the public, it's immediately less effective. So people started saying, this is a Russian troll or this is a Russian bot. You saw an entire disinformation industry and think tanks and everything come on board. And they were consistently month after month outing. And then you'd see Facebook and Twitter taking down accounts. So the Russians' ability to insert themselves in the US audience space got less over those four years. They did try and interfere in the midterms, but US Cyber Command took action. You know, by 2018, the U.S. is starting to probe and sort of push back against this stuff. You're seeing labeling of Russian state outlets and news outlets, state propaganda from Iran, China, even in terms of social media feeds. And then you're seeing a lot of pressure, you know, being pushed against them, both by the social media companies now that don't want this to happen again, and the U.S. government, and we should say European governments, they really came on board. There's a European Union versus Disinfo group. There's the Atlantic Council. There's Stanford Observatory. There's so many more entities knocking these down. CNN did their own takedown of a Russian troll farm in Africa that was trying to impersonate African-Americans in the U.S. and the political left in the U.S. So they tried. The only success they had was Rudy Giuliani, essentially, and a guy named Andre Drukach. And this, <laughs> this goes to the second element of this, which is the domestic space, which is the only thing that kind of happened was Andrei Drakach is this Ukrainian parliamentarian. He is pals with uh, Rudy Giuliani, and they're focused on Hunter Biden, and they're trying to inject narratives you know, into the U.S. audience space. They were on YouTube and a few things like that. And they were eventually, uh, Drakach was designated by the Treasury Department, Trump's own Treasury Department, as a Russian agent. And that allowed the system to sort of clean up the Russia stuff. So they never stopped. What is most fascinating is the things that I was talking about when I testified four years ago about how Trump embraced disinformation from afar is he just did it right in everyone's face from the time the Mueller investigation ended until the election was over and beyond, meaning that the whole Ukraine impeachment trial was essentially about you help me with my election campaign or you don't get javelin missiles. And so the whole idea when I said it, I got a lot of criticism that day when it testified, like, he's not a Russian agent. He's not working with him. I said, he's, I didn't say he's a Russian agent, but he doesn't mind what's going on. He immediately just went and did it again, like in front of all of our faces. And that is the difference in 2020 is that I think the Russians were like, can you believe 
We don't need to write fake news because President Trump is lying about something every day. And the cycle in 2020 was Donald Trump said something crazy or a lie or a falsehood. We rewrite it and send it back to the U.S. audience. There's nothing they could do that would eclipse kind of what the Trump campaign was already putting out themselves. Uh, they could not create more distortion. It's kind of an incredible thing, right? It's like, you know, the purveyors of propaganda, fake news, disinformation, memes, all this stuff, like the guys who maybe didn't invent it, but are the foremost international practitioners of it in the modern era, got to a point where they looked up and said, we are now obsolete. Donald Trump's taking our job. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what else can we do? You know, the guy, he's better than we are at it. When I testified in 2018, I think it was to the Commerce Committee. As soon as it was over, one of the head staffers was like, we think we got just a few months to get some laws in place or everybody in this building is going to be doing it. Like that was the conclusion. And it was kind of like, if there's no rules against it, we think every political campaign will be incentivized to use a similar approach. And that's pretty much where we're at, I feel like at this point, you know, is the degree to which any campaign embraces it. And then what are the costs of doing it? There's almost a cost for not doing it, you know, at this point yeah. to some degree. Do, yeah. do you think, and this is the, my, my last question before we take our last break, and then we'll come back and talk about the future and where things are headed on a variety of fronts related to misinformation, disinformation, extremism online and off. Do you think right now that this January 6th insurrection and all of the kind of ripple effects out from it, we've heard it compared to 9-11 by a lot of people. People say this was, you know, a domestic 9-11. And, and by domestic, I mean the terrorists were domestic terrorists rather than foreign terrorists. And it was that level of a security failure on that scale, right? Do you think that there will be a similar kind of impact on the national security architecture infrastructure in the country? as a result of what happened January 6th, as what happened on, in scale and sweep as what happened after 9-11? No, and I hope it doesn't happen. The response was so disproportionate in bureaucratic structure and scale after 9-11. The perception of threat was that there's going to be another 9-11 tomorrow. You know, that was 2002 and three. There's going to be another one. It was so huge, you know, the response. It just was overwhelming. Right now, I don't see the same sort of reaction because there's a little bit of disbelief. And this is where terrorism gets so weird because, you know, in the U.S., people go, oh, those guys are a bunch of kooks. You know, that's kind of the collective answer. And I have sat in places where people have said, do you think it's safe to go to Paris mm -hmm. next week? Because there was an ISIS bombing. And I'm like, of course. You know, that was like one attack over 20 years. Why are you worried about it? But the media response to it is outsized. And then I'll point across the street and be like, well, what do you think about those drug dealers across the street, right? They have AR-15s. I could see them right here. Are you worried about that? Like, ah, those guys are harmless, yeah, right? right. <laughs> so it's about perspectives. And I thought the Josh Hawley dangerous and idiotic comments he made to Ray during the session last week, which was, are you tracking people's cell phones, right, in the Capitol? Are you using cell tower records? And Ray was like, I don't know every investigation, which is the right answer, but absolutely if it's warranted and there were warrants issued to do that. I think as long as half the aisle is trying to actually undermine the FBI's ability to investigate the January 6th event, then there's no way there'll be a big reshuffling of the domestic terrorism you know, landscape and scene. I would be shocked. Interesting. And that's a really good moment for us to break because I want to come back and, and as we talk about the future, start with the fact that after 9-11, we had a bipartisan, unified consensus that 
a really bad thing had happened, a huge failure had taken place and that we needed to find out what happened and to try to adjust. Now, whether we handled that right or not is a different question, but there was this moment where people said, you know, Republicans, Democrats alike, this is a disaster. We weren't ready for it. We need to adapt and confront this foe. That is not the kind of reaction we've had to January 6th and nothing like it. And I want to take that as our starting point for the last part of Hell and High Water when we come back with Clint Watts after these messages. I'm also criticized because I've made the comment that on January 6th, I never felt threatened because I didn't. And mainly because I knew that even though those thousands of people that there were uh, marching to the Capitol yeah. were trying to pressure people like me to vote the way they want me to vote, I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. And so I wasn't concerned. Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, this could be in trouble. Had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. So welcome back to the third and final part of Hell and High Water. I'm John Heilman here with Clint Watson. Clint, we just listened to Ron Johnson, everybody's favorite uh, idiot of the moment when it comes to what happened on January 6th. I'd say more broadly, Ron Johnson's kind of a comprehensive, full-scale, wide-spectrum idiot, but on this issue, he's particularly idiotic and also guilty of spreading a lot of disinformation. You know, not that long ago, he got in trouble when he kind of described the atmosphere of January 6th as being kind of like a festival, kind of picnic carnival kind of atmosphere that no one had anything to fear. And Amy Klobuchar and others came out and were like, this is disinformation. That clip I just played was Ron Johnson on a radio interview just a couple days ago essentially in a blatantly, wildly, screamingly racist way saying, you know, hey, if it had been Black Lives Matter or Antifa, I would have had, I would have shit my pants. But given it was a bunch of white people, I didn't really, I wasn't worried at all. Beyond the racism uh, implicit in that, which is obviously called out by a lot of people when that interview aired, I do want to ask you about Ron Johnson, because I know you've had some interactions with him and this idiocy is not new for him, but it's also, it has become increasingly emblematic of the way Republicans have dealt with the fallout from January 6th and the way they've tried to explain it away, recast it, reinterpret it, engage in revisionist history around it, whitewash it, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to me a little bit about what you think of that and what you think it means for our ability to meet this new challenge, these domestic extremists uh, organizing online, carrying over into the real world, what the challenges are that the fact that there's not a unified perspective on what happened January 6th the challenges that that poses, and in particular, the fact that there seem to be a lot of Republicans whose attitude is, whatever, moving on. I think it's the difference between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and any domestic terrorist is al-Qaeda and ISIS and their supporters don't vote, and domestic terrorists and their supporters do vote. And that's really how it plays out in the legislative bodies to a degree, which is they're dancing a fine line between how their speech has rallied around things like nationalism or race issues to try and mobilize voters and try and build their war chest for political donations translates into a complete paralysis on policy of a known and easily observable dangerous threat in the country. In 2019, I testified to the same Senate Homeland Affairs Committee on Domestic Terrorism, which is unusual. They usually won't have a hearing on that. And Senator Johnson from Wisconsin was there. And there were four witnesses. One of them was from the Anti-Defamation League, another from University of Maryland Star Program. They had the data. That's their whole job is to collect data around 
terrorist incidents, and it was overwhelmingly extreme right wing, not extreme left wing. And Johnson did not like that. He literally said something to the effect of, there's no such thing as right wing or left wing. It's just terrorism. The use of far right, far left, it's just not helpful. It feeds into that. It politicizes it. And nobody in this panel is associated with anybody on the far right or the far left. So just, I would say, drop that. Again, call a hate group a hate group. Call a terrorist a terrorist. That's not right wing terrorism. It's not part of, you know, the right wing. And it is because we know that they wore Trump hats. I mean, every every one of these cases, when when you roll through the the data and evidence publicly available, I mean, they have MAGA hats on or flags. I, they are there because of the political speech. And I think that's the other divergence over the last decade is many of the things people like Anwar Aliki said and we saw as incitement to terrorism are being said by elected leaders to a degree. In the same exact way, it becomes really hard to manage your threat or do something about it if you're the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security whenever they're saying those things. Like, how do you navigate forward? And what you see is internal. I think you saw that at DHS, right? There's a whistleblower case where they essentially muted their assessment. You know, they were told to play up Antifa. They had no data to go on. They were told to discount, you know, some of the far right groups. They had plenty of data to go on. So the institutions go into paralysis and then they slow down. That's why they don't react more quickly to the Capitol. The president's in the lawn, right? right? They, that's why they don't send out intelligence bulletins because they'd have to write about the people that are in the house. You know, they're yeah. in, they're on Capitol Hill. So these investigations, right, are ongoing. You know, a lot of people have been charged, but the investigations continue to turn up new information on what seems like almost a daily basis. And almost all of it is disturbing in some way or another. And there's a lot of questions that are still being asked about whether there were members who were complicit. What exactly explained the failure of law enforcement on that day? Why exactly the National Guard wasn't deployed more quickly? Wasn't Why there wasn't more preparation? All of these questions, which were kind of clear on you know, in the, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, we are now in a piecemeal way. We're diving into all of them. And as I say, almost on a daily basis, we get some piece of news that is alarming or unsettling at the least. I guess I want to ask you as we sit here today, again, before we turn our eyes totally to the future, what are the big questions you still have? What are you waiting to learn? What do we still need to know about what happened on January 6th if we're going to learn the right lessons from it? What are the big questions outstanding in your mind? Two parts. The first is on, I'm going to use the Oath Keepers as an example, the Proud Boys probably to a degree. It was not all members of those groups nationally, but it was definitely a dedicated core group of them, you know, on January 6th that showed up there. And it appears that there was a significant amount of coordination. And so to what degree does that overlap with two elements? One, those that are in the Capitol, you know, congressmen, congressional staff, aides, we saw the arrest of, I think it was a State Department you know, uh, employee, essentially. And the second part is, how does that line up with what I call the usual suspects of Flynn, you know, Stone, the people that were pardoned, who were there as part of the Stop the Steal rallies, were out into the crowds you know, the days before, and was there coordination from that perspective? Because the online synchronization, advertising, pumping up of all this stop the steal was massive. And that didn't happen at a grassroots way. It was organized to some degree. There was resourcing around it. 
does the FBI take it to that next step and go up to the top of that organizational structure or not? Or do they hold back? Or maybe they just don't have enough evidence of it. That is what I'm looking for 30 to 60 days from now, because they have plenty of people that have been arrested that can be interviewed. That's usually the tough part, right? Is you got to flip somebody. You got, I think, three or 400 people arrested. A lot of options there that you normally would not have as an investigator. So the investigation is taking place on multiple agencies on multiple levels. Out in the world, a couple of things have happened that are big things, right? One of them is in the social media space where after many people would say, and I'm sure you would, far too long, this thing finally triggered the moment where the Twitters and Facebooks and others of the world finally said, enough. Like there's a bunch of these motherfuckers. We got to get off these platforms. We got to shut them down, including the president of the United States. But, you know, uh, the app Google Play Store, the Apple App Store, you know, delisted a bunch of the apps for social platforms that seem to be havens for right wing online extremism and left wing online extremism, all extremism. And then, you know, various accounts have been shut down. So that's a big deal, right? Especially given the way that Facebook and Twitter reacted in the wake of 2016, when we realized how much Russian disinformation flowed across those platforms was for Mark Zuckerberg and others to pretend like it didn't happen and to lie to people actively for months and months. This has been different, right? So I will stipulate that I think it's a salutary effect, but I ask you, Clint, whether they've done enough and if they haven't done enough, what should they be doing more? I enjoy watching them move in ways that they didn't four to five years ago. I'm sympathetic sometimes because I've worked with some of the tech companies, you know, and I'm sympathetic sometimes in that they would be okay policing things if they had good bearings on what to police. I find the Jack versus Zuckerberg position going into the election interesting, perplexing, confounding, and also makes complete sense from their perspective. Say what you mean by that. So Twitter, I'm going to use them as sort of caricatures of different positions, right? But this is of the whole industry. Twitter says, we're not going to do political ads, you know, and we're going to push that off our platform. And Facebook says, we're not. We're going to let you kind of say whatever you want. I'm, I'm summarizing, you know, paraphrasing, but that's a general position. I want to yell at Facebook because I want to say, hey, you got to stop this stuff. We know it's going to lead to violence over time if you just let them you know, process unfiltered lies indefinitely about democratic processes and stuff. At the same point, I also know as a business perspective, they say, as soon as I start policing this, then I get beat by the refs the other way. They, Josh Hawley's going to be screaming at me or Ted Cruz that I'm censoring conservatives and then I face a litany of lawsuits the other direction. And so it ultimately comes down to what the EU has done, which is the EU has said, this is hate speech, get rid of it. And the industry then says they don't like it, they fight it, but once the die is cast, then they go with it. And I feel that way across the board for them as well, that you tell us what to get rid of and we'll get rid of it. And there's no consensus, right? And so I like it that Facebook and Twitter and all these companies, YouTube across the board, right? They all deplatform Trump and many others of these extremists. But I see that as more of a reaction that two Democratic senators in Georgia won the day before in many ways than what Trump had done. Trump was a constant, you know, across all of that. When they see the Congress change, they're right. hedging their bets and taking risk. And from a business perspective, it probably makes total sense. Morally, I don't know how they stand on a lot of those things. Right. You know, it's tough. Yeah. Let's not use the word morally in the context of business in general. It's always kind of a misnomer when you, the word gets thrown around. 
one of the consequences of some of this deplatforming, either shutting down platforms entirely or kicking people off platforms, is it seems like on the basis of what I'm reading and hearing, including from people like you, is that there has been an actual effect now on some of these groups in terms of them mm-hmm. splintering online, having, you know, we talked a little earlier about the shift of encrypted communication, but some of these groups actually seem to be kind of in disarray. And there was, of course, that period right after January 6th, there was, you know, genuine concern about groups converging on Washington and trying to disrupt the inauguration. None of that happened. And the, I guess the conventional wisdom is part of the reason it didn't happen is because people in the extremist world were like, we're being watched. If we go there, we're all going to get fucking arrested. So we're going to stay away. So there's like a little bit of a broken play quality to things right now where p- things are seem a little scattered and in disarray. Am I right, number one, in believing that to be true? And then number two, what do you think about the notion that the domestic terror scene may start to reassemble itself by the summer of this year, which is not that far from now, could be a time of of jeopardy and peril for the country on this front. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of your assessment. Right now, there's chaos in the system in the sense that where everyone used to hang out, let's say it's a bar, just burned to the ground, right? (laughs) So think of it in the physical world. Like if you used to all go hang out in one place and that's where you organized everything you were doing, it suddenly evaporates or everyone gets arrested if you're a criminal group then there's nowhere to go. And there has to be a center of gravity reform. In most of those circles, they're moving to these fringe platforms that are lesser policed and trying to bring followers to them, but they're scattering all over the place. So that takes some time to see what platforms will drift to and who will be the inspiration that brings them to those platforms. This is where it comes into Trump. They're all looking to see where the president goes and what he says. They're looking... For him to point or direct, but they'll only wait so long. And so the more he starts to appear in person and in public, they will listen to him. If he is still charged and vitriolic and, you know, driving people to targets, they will pay attention. But if not, other leaders will emerge. And I think that's what you see with some of the extreme corners is the young bucks who are proud of what happened on January 6th are going to try and amp it up, right? In, In the vacuum, they will try and move forward. Separately, as the pandemic ends, the other big variable changes. We haven't had school shootings, really, right? Because no one's in school. We haven't had mass gatherings or concerts like Las Vegas. We have not had giant target sets that an extremist could attack. January 6th was one that they manufactured. That's why it was so unusual. So that's my next fear. And the third one is really around vaccine disinformation conspiracies, anti-mask protests that we've seen pop up, the folks that went to Dodger Stadium and tried to stop the line. We will hit a point here, probably it sounds like, uh, according to President Biden in the next couple of months, where everybody that wants a vaccine will have it. And now we'll be trying to make sure that we can hit herd immunity and there's going to be a differential in there. And the pressure will come up both from businesses, public places, travel, from schools. I have that issue in my own neighborhood. You need to get vaccinated so we can get back to normal. And when that pressure starts to hold, I see a collision happening, you know, around summertime where we got to get to 70, 80%, we're at 50, 60% and there's resistance and we can't get through the pandemic and that pressure mounts and now we have targets and now political leaders seize on it and they start to move forward. I may be wrong. You know, I'm open to being wrong. I'm just trying to guess like as the months come up, that's what gets me nervous about August, you know, 2021 and beyond. You mentioned COVID just now. In the world of conspiracy theories propagated online, 
over the course of the last couple of years, this is a place where Russia has played a pretty big role, right? Where, you know, we yes. didn't see them play as big a role in the election as we expected or feared, but they have played a big role in terms of COVID disinformation. And I wonder, like, at this point, is it clear to you, even though we're not totally out of the woods with COVID yet, that when we look back on how COVID played out and the ways in which we all know Trump had this huge role in politicizing it and making it a culture war, but it also seems to me that when the history of it's written, that some of those conspiracy theories, many of them propagated by Russia online, were a contributing factor in what made it harder and contributed to America's really quite calamitous handling of this pandemic. Definitely in the early period when the pandemic started, Russia, their propaganda and disinfo was hot on it about bioweapon conspiracies, and it was uh, made in Fort Detrick kind of conspiracies, which goes back to their old AIDS playbook, you know, right. that the US made AIDS. Yep. They were hot on that. That is now picked up, and ironically, they were the first ones out with Sputnik Five, right? And which has turned out to be a pretty high efficacy vaccine. So now they have a two front battle, which is they want to undermine the U.S. and its vaccine rollout, and at the same point, they've got a business angle. You know, they want to sell it around the right. world. So they're playing both. Depending on what country you go to, Mexico is a great example, by the way. They're trying to poo-poo U.S. vaccines and the distribution and also say Sputnik V is great and you should trust the vaccine. <laughs> so they're a little bit, they, they literally have undermined themselves yeah. inadvertently because they didn't know they were going to be so fast out of the gate to where, oh yeah, we told you not to worry about vaccines. We just meant Pfizer. Ours is fine, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're playing it both directions. I think we will see over time a lot of this drift over and some of the early narratives around COVID-19's origins were direct traced back to Russian disinfo and propaganda, you know, over the years. Same with China right. to a degree. So let's just briefly, let's talk about Trump. You know, we just finished talking about deplatforming. The big kahuna of deplatforming was the deplatforming of Trump, kicking him off all of these social media platforms. And I will say it is one of the things I take most delight in on a daily basis is reading the absurd press releases that they send out by email all day long, because it's just, it's so funny to see. They are so ludicrous. And somehow they're the kinds of things that he would have tweeted. And somehow on Twitter, the ludicrousness of them is not as not enhanced to the degree when you see it in the form of a press release under the seal of the president. <laughs> you, you look at some of these press releases about Herschel Walker or about taking yeah. credit for, for uh, you know, hope everyone remembers that it was me. We wouldn't have these vaccines if it wasn't for me. Everyone remember, you know, you look at them and go, my God, the man is just desperately flailing without his social media platform. And it seems to me that, that every one of those press releases and seeing him flail that desperately is a very strong, powerful argument for keeping him off those platforms, right? And it's, it's having its intended effect. And I, I guess my question for you is, if Trump was a coagulant, a unifying force, an accelerant, all of those things, he's now deplatformed and has lost the ability to speak in some ways, what changes that? How does Trump get back in the conversation? Is there a way, I mean, that, that he can, can reassert himself, come back onto the scene and start to play the kind of deleterious role that he played in the online and offline extremist world that he played previously without the platform that he had on Twitter, the platform on Facebook, the platform on Instagram, the platform in these other places? I, I'm afraid I'm going to give away the playbook that he could do it, but I'm sure they're already thinking of it. One, he's got to get back out on the ground. The brilliance of the the Trump machine is that they always understood that the rally powered the online environment, the online environment powered the rally. They had that synergy between physical and virtual that others don't figure out. 
the Russians are brilliant at this, by the way, separate from Trump. Like they understand, create a real world action and then amplify it on social media, vice versa, create a conspiracy on social media, confirm it in the real world. So he could do that. If he goes out and hits the road, he starts doing rallies, he's back on Fox News and they're covering him. And then he finds someone else to be his conduit into social media to draw a magnet to him. He could do it. I think the biggest challenge he has is he has nothing to say. He, he doesn't have a message at this moment. Nothing he said recently sticks. Even during his campaign in 2020, he did not have build the wall. He did not have the emails. None of those things work the same way. He can't come out now and say, I made the vaccine, but don't get it. <laughs> you know, like everything works in opposition to itself. <laughs> it's like, what would he say? Right. It's all backwards. So I think his biggest thing is his record is played out. And I remember John Meacham, uh, when he, his book, Souls of America, you know, came out and he said populism has about a four-year average or something. Yeah. It's kind of interesting when we think about it. It's like, do you really want to hear about Hillary's emails still? Comey. No, people don't care. You know, they moved on. I mean, I hope that people have now uh, moved on from Hillary's emails. Let's God, let's hope if they haven't moved on, we're pretty well fucked. But I'm pretty confident they've moved on. And that's a positive development, I think. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's not the only positive development. We've got the Biden administration has just passed its first major legislative package, the the COVID uh, relief rescue economic stimulus package, $1.9 trillion Bill, a giant piece of legislation by historic standards. I mean, truly gargantuan and also a piece of legislation that's like about three quarters of the public likes. And I have to say, you know, put aside the merits of the bill, the notion that there is anything, let alone a thing that is this large and this consequential that you can get 75% of the American public to agree on was something that in this polarized climate that we live in and, you know, with all the alternative information spaces and alternative reality and alternative facts and, and epistemic closures all over the place. The idea that we could get 75% of agreement on anything, let alone something that's genuinely large and genuinely consequential is kind of mind blowing. And it's even more mind blowing if you set it against the fact that, you know, at the same moment that 75% of the country is for this legislation, right. some large chunk of those people, you know, we know tens of millions of people believe the big lie that Trump told that Joe Biden stole the election, that he's not the legitimate president. So, I mean, that's just kind of an amazing thing. And I guess it kind of leads to the question, which is, is it kind of an anomaly? Is this just kind of a freak occurrence where the approval for the legislation is just based on the fact that a lot of people are getting checks and, and so people are for it. They're getting some free money and they're psyched about that. Or is it actually maybe a small, hopeful leading indicator sure. that in this particular moment, given what the country has been through and what it's still going through, and given the particulars of the Biden administration, that maybe we could be turning a corner where, you know, we could start to knit things back together and get, if not everyone, at least a larger chunk of the country to get back to a common, agreed upon set of truths and realities that are, in fact, truths. And realities, I mean, that's the big question before us, right? I mean, which way is it going to go? It can go either way. And I think what you're discussing, kind of what I was thinking about, is understanding what people tend to believe. And there is still a false belief that the truth will win out just by speaking the truth alone. And that will not work. When I was doing my research years ago, there's one thing that stuck out 
to me more than any, which is what do people tend to believe? And they believe four things. That which they see first, that which they see the most, that which comes from a trusted source, and that which is not accompanied by rebuttal, i.e. your social media feed, right? And so, you know, mind control, aliens, those sorts of things, you wouldn't consider them. But once you see them a hundred times, even if you know it's false, you have to undertake the thought to say, should I consider this, that COVID is fake? <laughs> you know, I don't know anybody. I'm by myself and isolated. I'm not at the water cooler at work. I'm not with family and friends. I'm literally just tied to my phone. Dangerous position to be in. Which brings us back to scaling truth in the way that falsehoods are scaled. There's lots of incentives to scale falsehoods. Some are financial, some are political power, some are social dynamics, some are foreign manipulation. We all know what the value of scaling truth is. And so we have to be open to ways to do that. When we look at how our government operates, and I'm working on some of this now, and I've, I've been in discussions with you know, the US government, you cannot accept sending a 70-something-year-old white man out to a podium one time to say to the country, things are great, go forth and conquer, will win when there are 8,000 forces pushing against him. And so you have to do a dramatic increase, not just in your message volume across the board, but in today's social media landscape, the number of messengers that look like and talk like every audience in America around four or five basic principles. And if you did that, that it would at least mute the cacophony of negative false information that is bombing Americans in their social media feeds to where they're like, I don't know if I should get a vaccine. It, it was made too fast. And you're like, are you a doctor? You're like, no, <laughs> right? Like th those conspiracies are moving in different groups so fast. I don't know if we should get it because I'm not sure COVID's a thing. Although my family member died of it, right? So right. to do that, I think we got to really fundamentally rethink how America messages beyond a press conference from the press secretary and the president of the United States doing an announcement every once in a while. Right. It's natural that, you know, that Joe Biden wants to do everything different from how Donald Trump did it. He's the remedy, not the replica, right? Donald Trump is not a, an example to be followed in most areas of leadership and as a president. The one way in which Donald Trump was exemplary in some ways was that he did understand the new modern media environment in a way that no other president has. I mean, he was a 70-odd-year-old guy who really got the way in which information moves now. And this whole part of why he was powerful was that he yep. got that. He got it in a way that very few other people his age do, certainly, and very few establishment politicians do. And I think you know it would be a smart thing if the Biden people, at least in that one small area, would be like, you know what? There's something we can learn from how Donald Trump communicated and take some lessons from it. I, I want to volunteer to be the chief propagandist for the United States government and do it for a week, you know, in hopes that they would just take it on, you know, like you could see what Trump did and the way that system worked. And while the message was terrible and negative, uh, it was the way forward, you know, going forward. That would be a good job for you. I, think. I would love to do it. Great to see you today. Um, every time I ever talk to you, I walk away a smarter, b a little bit more, sometimes a lot more uneasy about the future, but most importantly, always feel like I am wiser for the conversation. And you also always leave me with a lot more to think about and a lot more questions to ask, which I think is a, probably a pretty good um, sign that a conversation has gone well. So thanks for taking the time today. John, thanks for having me on. 
Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to my friend Clint Watts for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 